Good morning, Cherise. How's Good it going?、Uh, how are things in Japan?、Uh, it's great. I have much better weather, weather than Hong Kong. Oh, yeah. It was significantly better. Pretty bad. Well, it hasn't been that bad. Honestly, nothing that isn't manageable, but it's been, it's been tough、oh, getting around. That TA. It's been tough getting around. Maybe you can tell people where you're at right now. Okay, I'm at Ishigaki, Japan, which is actually only a 55 minute plane ride from Taipei. So, I'm much closer to Taiwan than I am to the main island of Japan. And the feels here are basically Hawaii. So, this is the second episode of Making It Up. How did you, how did you feel about the, the first episode? I actually wound up listening to the whole thing.、Uh, and after getting over the awkwardness of the sound of my voice, I was pretty pleased. Yeah, I mean, I, I, thought, I thought we had good rapport. For our first one, it was pretty good. But yeah, you know,、um, the part that I, I really enjoyed was to see, seeing your illustration after the fact. And I'm sure I could say the same thing about you. No, I'm, I'm excited to see what you come up with for this one.、Um, I'm actually the one cheating this week. I didn't want to use that same gridded paper as last week. So I'm using an iPad Pro with a pen. Yeah, what are you using today? I am using a Muji pen and a moleskin. So we're going full hipster. Maybe we can dive right into things. I mean, I don't want to keep you away from your family because you're probably going to、sure. have, a, have a, a wealth of activities planned, given your weather so much better than ours.、Um, It's going to be snorkeling today. Oh, that sounds fun. That sounds really good.、Yeah. So maybe we can jump into the first topic, which is a discussion about the skim. So, the skim, if you're not familiar, it's、uh, a female centric newsletter that has a lot of subscribers. I think there's, a, there's over a million subscribers. And The whole premise behind the newsletter is basically taking world news or just relevant news topics and simplifying it and introducing a liberal dose of pop culture. And, you know, recently there was,、um, I guess there's these two, tra- these two schools of thoughts that emerged where one side, courtesy of this,、uh, this writer for Slate, Christina Cattarucci, I'm pretty sure I screwed up that name. She was going off about how the skim is the Ivanka Trump of newsletters, where it's basically supporting the fact that news can be simple and you can be overtly basic in how you present it. On the other hand, people are arguing that, like, you know, courtesy of a, a writer for the Columbia Journalism Review, Kaylin, another name that is very difficult to pronounce, Kaylin Ugalik. Was saying at the end of the day, you're putting, you're putting these topics in front of people that might not necessarily have,、um, might not necessarily be looking for、uh, insight into this. So it's, once again, I mean, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure I used this term last week. It's like things that are net positive. And you're, the fact you're actually bringing、mm. this to light is better than not highlighting it at all, even if it's a bit basic, even if it's maybe reducing the severity or seriousness of something by pairing a topic with. I don't know, a Justin Bieber lyric. So, what are your thoughts on、mm. how news should be presented, Jerry's? Like, do you feel that there is room for something that's fun and light hearted when it comes to news?、Mm. Well, maybe first off, do you, do, do you read the skim? So, I used to read the skim. I used to be a subscriber. And then this makes me even worse than the Ivanka Trumps of newsletters is that I couldn't keep up with it. Because it's a daily newsletter that is, I would say, like a 10 minute read, maybe. 
Um, and it, it is actually, in my defense of this game, it's actually quite dense because, sure, maybe some of the times they introduce a news topic is with a pop culture reference, but they always link out to other articles. So if you were to like seriously read the skim, you'd be devoting maybe half an hour to like reading hard news on subjects that aren't easy to understand. Um, so that's me and the skim. In preparation for this, I did go back to read a couple of recent issues. And I don't know if this is in response to the Slate's criticism, but I didn't find a single shallow martini-based metaphor. I subscribed um, quite a while ago, and I mean, I never read it. The, but the reason is, is that mm. like those references, I feel detract from the actual topic at hand, and it almost reduces the actual importance of something. Why do you think it reduces the topic at hand? Because I, I think that you have to find a way to create relevance for it by injecting pop culture. As opposed, how do you consume your news? I consume my news through RSS, through newsletters, not really social media, because honestly, for whatever reason, I mean, Twitter is probably the most intellectually rooted sort of news discovery I have, but it's not like I'm going to Facebook for news. What's the most skim like product that you follow? Is there one that's like an aggregate? Uh, what's, there's kind of the male version of the skim called the hustle that I just started following okay. out of, I almost like market research to see how they do it. But even then, like creating the flow and the, the kind of the narrative is much more impactful than catching me with, um, you know, a pop culture reference. And I think that's, right. that's the thing is that people, for me personally, it's, it's not that you can't, you can't word it in a way that is a little bit more lighthearted, but do you need to reference something from pop culture in regards to getting someone's attention? Or can we start building a, a base of knowledge where, hey, you know what, let's, let's lead with the fact of why this is important or why this is impactful versus, hey, you know what, what's the meme of the week? Let me, let me latch onto that as the vehicle. I see a lot of parallels from what we talked about last week where it's like, at the end of the day, you're using, you're using like this thing where it's almost like a Trojan horse where you're going to use pop culture as a Trojan horse. And then once you let it into your life, you, you start to wrap your head around it. Then the real message unveils itself. Personally, I think it can be successful. I just don't like it. I just, mm -hmm. I just think that it, you know, there's, there's obviously different ways you're going to look on how you're going to educate someone on, on a topic. But, you know, I, I generally find defining the importance of something in, through the writing and setting up the argument versus, you know, what's the, what's the lowest common denominator? I, I have two responses. One is I don't think the skim is as shallow as you're describing. Um, I don't know if it's improved since when you were a regular reader, but in my research, I really did not find it to be as, um, like as weak as the slate was describing and as I feel like you are currently describing. And my second response is that something that I do follow regularly are those satirical news shows like The Tonight Show, Late Night with Seth Meyers, Last Week Tonight. So all three of these shows cover the news, right? But they do it in a way that's humorous and they are very popular, right? Seth Meyers, Trevor Noah, John Oliver. I feel like- John Oliver, I've watched. Even if 
Right. So you at least are aware of these people and they have a big viewership. I was not doing research and watching an episode of one of these shows. And I was struck by how much, like, how much of this baiting that they do that we've been describing that the skim does. This baiting where they're like, hey, the news is hard to understand. Let me use a joke to set up this difficult topic for you. So I kind of feel like if the skim gets hate, then these shows should get hate too, because they do the same thing. And, and maybe they all do in the same, they all justly deserve it. I mean, there is no really right or wrong answer. It's on the basis of the medium. I think TV needs to set itself up in a certain way, especially by virtue of you having more limited time. You kind of, you can't, you can't mess around. But I, mm. to that argument, like, you know, John Oliver, I think has a sense of, the facial reactions, everything is done to, as you said, set something up. And I don't always agree with that either. Mm -hmm. I think there is part of that that I just want a little bit more rigor and I want people to potentially focus on things from a more functional point of view rather than entertainment. Because I feel everything is overtly driven by entertainment. Like the skim is, every all those references create an entertainment product that personally like philosophically i don't always agree with and i think that's where mm. my that's where my my friction with with this like if you if I was to look at the like slate versus uh columbia journalism review like i'm definitely on the slate side mm. so i think that it's like mm. coming down to that point where hey can you can you start to push people to understand you know the importance of something versus hey you know what let's let's sugarcoat the topic but then again, that's the thing is, I, I kind of see now. I'm now I'm trying to now I'm weakening my argument, but I know for a fact there's certain people that need a stepping stone into yeah. deeper narratives, deeper news, whatever it may be. And I guess that's the part. Like maybe it's just my part within my current you know news consumption habit that doesn't allow me to get behind something like the skim. Whereas if I was ten years younger and I was just trying to find a way, find a, a more approachable way, then yeah, of course, then maybe that's what it is. But then that sort of leads us to the next thing is like, I didn't need the skim or a skim like product to understand the relevance and importance of understanding the news as is. So like, what does that set someone up for if like you never graduate past the skim and this becomes your de facto news source? Although to that point, I mean, people are arguing that this not meant to be the de your only news source, just like Facebook is in your only news source. I think you are a more advanced news consumer. I think, you know, we've been talking about, uh, both of the articles sort of refer to this target demographic of working women who are somehow too busy for the news, but have time for social engagements. But what about like young women who are maybe 16 through 22? who are just figuring out like there's a bigger world out there, like couldn't this also be a product for them? And if you think about it that way, like it seems, it seems quite beneficial. Like they need a stepping stone. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's totally valid. It's just, what is the, what is the progression of that? There's definitely publications that exist that are fulfilling, especially on the news front, that whole, that whole range of editorial products. I think in a way as well that, the make-in briefing that we do. Um, we think of it, I know that you are 
I guess, slightly anti-skim from what you've been expressing. But I think the make-in briefing is a little bit like the skim in the idea that we are trying to be a starting point for people to learn more about culture on their own. Yeah, I would 100% agree. And, you know, to that point, I think the, the challenge as of late has been, what is the proper balance? Like, you know, I, this is the, the an interesting thing because like over the course of the last few weeks, anytime something comes up and we have to discuss the direction of something, I need to remove myself from the discussion mm. because I'm, I'm not a prototypical user. As I mentioned, Alex is my product market fit guy. Like if you put something in front of him and he can soon become the barometer of whether it has sort of a larger audience. Whereas for me, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty narrow minded in the things I like and don't like. Full stop. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm not going to argue with that one. I yeah. agree with you. And I'm really bad at drawing and talking to them. So we mentioned the briefing and something that you put in it was the Google project We Wear Culture. And what this is, is that Google teamed up with different fashion institutes and museums in 40 different countries around the world to create this mega database of textiles, clothing, art related to clothing, historical documents regarding fashion designers, and they've put all this online. There are a couple of innovative ways to sort through it based off of time or color, and they've also created some VR videos that go through stories such as how Coco Chanel designed the first uh, little black dress. Yeah, I thought... So my question for you... Oh, go for it. No, I was going to say I thought the whole project was eye-opening for me on the basis that I think this... this any I think we're at a point currently where there's a lot of subcultural stuff that is at risk of being lost because you're not product mm. properly cataloging it. And this is definitely a step in the right direction. You know, I can only imagine there's a lot of shitty angel fire geocity sites that have already been lost that kind of had this back catalog of amazing stories and history that for, you know, lack of upkeep, they're no longer there. But so like Google taking the initiative to do this, I think is really, really important. So what do you think is the value of having this database? Prior to making, I spent a lot of time in quote unquote fashion and, you know, I think I became really jaded. I stopped, I stopped really understanding the value of fashion and why it was so important. But now I look back on it and, mm -hmm. you know, being quote unquote out of the game, it's like fashion in itself has such an important role in, in helping define identity. And that to me is, mm. is something that's incredibly important because we're always seeking identity as, as humans. Like, who do we identify with? How do people perceive us? All these things. And while the, the intangible element of, of our thoughts and how we think are how a lot of people want to be perceived before you can get to that point, you really need to have an initial reference point. And I think fashion is what provides that reference point. And I, I mean, I came across this, this interview where they talked about you know, tech and wearables and what, and the reason why tech companies, uh, struggle to get into the struggle to create something fashionable is because their inability to understand kind of the psychological and cultural context of fashion. So you kind of need to mm. have a pulse on, on fashion and culture to know like, Hey, you know what? 
for 2017, this is what's popular and it's popular for this reason. And this is how I'm going to communicate physically those emotions and those thoughts. Like, I know, I know for you, Sharice, you've never been necessarily massively into fashion. Like what, what role does fashion play in culture? I think it is interesting how fashion can categorize you as one thing or another. You've talked about how fashion is a kind of self-expression, a creation of your own identity. But I, I am interested, I think, from an anthropological point of view, how fashion can cause someone from the outside to look at a group of people and to group them together, whether that person wants to be part of that group or not, right? So we quickly make distinctions on the backgrounds of people based off of the clothes that they wear. And, you know, like that really worn out phrase of uh, dress for the job you want. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think of how clothing can become a costume for people or like a way for you to try and be something that you're not, if that was what your aim was. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's quite interesting. I guess I'm thinking of it more as a historical vantage point because I feel like this Google project is very much about, like you were saying, like a catalog, right? It's something that would be a treasure trove for historians to look at and to see how um, maybe key figures in time were able to change culture, change groups because of the way they dress. That to me is really interesting, especially in this day and age where right around 2009 is when we saw people really starting to adopt this sort of in this popular internet form of dress. And when I say that, I mean, people started dressing the same, everything became a bit more accessible in all major cities, online shopping took off. So you started to see these sort of the this sort of heterogeneous approach to fashion where we need to kind of represent regionally how we look and feel our music subculture that sort of went away when everyone had access to generally the same things. And that to me is a little bit unfortunate. You know, the only one of the major things that still has a bit of identity to it, I think, is uh, weather, weather and temperature-based fashion, because those are things that you can't you can't transport, right? Like sneakers can be something that you could drop in any part of the world, but when it comes to like a big a big winter jacket, that's still the one frontier that you know that person in Canada is going to understand, but that person mm. in Mexico City, like that's the one incompatibility but aside from that everything's sort of the same and where will fashion be in the next 10 20 30 years um and i i i'm pretty pessimistic about it because we've started to move past fashion in several capacities where it's first off an upcoming generation is more in tune with experiences than they are with actual tangible products uh se mm -hmm. secondly I just think that there's there's a there's a certain openness to just being part of a movement as opposed to defining your own sense of fashion. So it's like what's popular now, okay, that becomes um, my de facto uniform as opposed to like back in the day mm. there was I personally felt that, you know, it was almost embarrassing and this is just me speaking from my youth. If I if I rolled up to like an event or a party and someone else was dressed like me, that was immediately a sense of embarrassment. Because you kind of fell in. You have talked about this. I have talked about it. You have talked about how you feel like it's so weird that people can now 
rock up to a place wearing Yeezys and see like five other people wearing Yeezys and find it totally cool. Did you have a chance to play around with the actual layout and all that stuff? I did. And I had a question about, so it was fun. Like I, I played around with going through color and time and looking at hats specifically or at, what was it? Different accessories. They sort things by different articles of clothing. But I was wondering, do you think that this is useful currently? In what, in what capacity? Well, like I, I see its value as a database and someone needs to do this work, right? It's a lot of work to gather all this material and take good photographs. But where does it become useful to a current day internet user? Like, why would someone just go and browse this? I, I think that it, it would definitely put some people onto things that they probably weren't familiar with. I mean, I especially look at the ones that, that date back to subcultures. I think subcultures are incredibly powerful because I think currently we don't have that same level of uh, subcultural intersection for fashion where, you know, this music genre equates to this style of fashion because now it's the, the cost of entry is literally just buying it. Whereas back in the day, I think there was mm-hmm. a sense of actual um, acquisition and earning that had to come with being a participant. Now there is the participation and kind of having skin in the game is very minor. So now you're kind of see mm-hmm. like these sort of pockets of subculture being defined by fashion. Um, and I, that's the thing is like, you know, it's always, it was always, I came to like skateboarding. It was, there was always, people were always very vocal about people dressing like they skated when they never skated. And I, that to me personally has kind of gone away and it kind of hold, it held people to being authentic, which now it's okay to not be authentic. And obviously me being the sort of like extremist that I am in the sense of authenticity, it's like either you're in or you're not, you know, like mm. I'm not a big fan of wearing basketball shoes and never played basketball. Right. Mm. And do I do I, So can I wear Vans even though I don't skate? I, mean, I, I this becomes an, a, a whole other topic because I don't think Vans is necessarily a skate company. And I, I don't think they Ooh. personally want to present themselves as a skate company. Okay. Uh, I, I had one more question about this Google project before we move past it. How do you think this benefits Google? Google needs to be seen as more than, and you know, I'm not saying this is the their only instance of doing it, but for me, Google needs to be seen as like an omnipresent brand in your life. It's someone that doesn't just mm-hmm. do search. It's not. It's someone that is going to infiltrate, for better or worse, all parts of your life. And this, to me, is like Google is is how do I put it? It's it's creating these pathways through culture. You know, whether it's language, I think that's one of the most interesting parts is Google's ability to work with language, you know, Google Translate, how they're improving that. But, you know, like I said, fashion, what makes fashion so powerful is the fact it's tangible. It's like you look at fashion and there is no guesswork. You see it, you understand how it's how it's worn, what it and I mean through through sites like the one they've created, the project they've created, you understand the context behind it. Whereas like certain mm-hmm. things like language, I can explain it to you. But I don't think it has the same impact because it doesn't doesn't have that same visual, that same ability to visually impact you. I think it is an interesting um, foreshadowing of the future where 
like you're saying, Google wants to be omnipresent and Google moves from being just this, they're already so much more than a search engine, but also more than something that's in your screen. Yeah, no, totally. And, you know, I think that's what everyone wants to do. They just want a greater share of your attention. And projects like this aren't going to define Google in the sense of like, this is going to be a new massive revenue stream. But I think that's continually mm. building the brand for them. That goes beyond sure. whatever, you know, phones, search. So maybe let's move on to the next topic, which pertains to uh, Wonder Woman. So I, I actually didn't watch the movie, but a lot of people in the office watched it and they kind of raised some interesting thoughts about the movie itself in terms of what it represents. How does Wonder Woman, by virtue of being one of the most popular, well, I think in the last two weeks has been the number one um, box office mm-hmm. movie. So maybe you can give in a short summary or description without revealing too much of the plot line. What is, <laughs> does that make it hard? Probably. Uh, no, no. I was just wondering if this is the first, well, this is only our second podcast, but if there's going to be a spoiler warning, this is where it would go. If you're the sort of person who wants to know nothing about a movie before watching it, like the next five minutes are not for you. Wonder Woman, which I have seen, is based off of the comics. And it's sort of the first superhero movie that features a strong female superhero and was also very successful because the previous ones were, I think, Elektra and Catwoman, which were not at all hits. So, Eugene, you didn't watch it. So everything you have is like heard by other people. Yeah, all my What insight. is the thing that what have you been hearing from other folks? So this was this was by virtue of Cody. He was saying that he wasn't I think that there, there's a sense of confidence in the fact that now people are opening up to uh strong female leads, but there's something about it that was that was that came up short. You know, there's something about the the whole way that it was presented that maybe wasn't able to fully fully push the message. And although I think Cody was still trying to figure out in the right words how to describe um, his perspective, he just felt that like w- there was so much more they could have done in terms of like mm. pushing a certain narrative. And this is sort of his objective point of view. Like, did you come away from that movie with the sense of, hey, this is actually pushing, you know? female equality forward in Hollywood, um, in the entertainment industry? Or was it simply just, hey, you know what? This is pure entertainment. And I think it's it's gender agnostic. Like it doesn't matter whether it was Wonder Woman or whoever else. It was just a good movie. So I discussed this with my sister who also watched it. And she feels that expecting a movie, any movie to be this big catalyst for feminism, like to change someone's mind is a lot of pressure to put on something that's for entertainment. Uh, so that was her stance on it. And I argued that I think what is exciting to me as a woman is just fair representation in Hollywood. Just not even the plot, but the fact that we can have a successful blockbuster that has a strong female lead and she gets most of the screen time and all of the action scenes is already exciting. So I don't know. It's just, is it because I'm female? And so my bar is lower than Cody's where I'm like, the fact that they even made this movie is a win. 
Yeah, <laughs> and maybe. so even though they could have done more, like I will take what we can get. Do you think that now that this has set the bar for something, that your next expectation is going to be higher? I think so. Um, I am not. I am not displeased with the Wonder Woman movie. I felt they they did not fall into any traps where the men help Diana and it's not really her fighting and it's the men. You know, they they didn't do that. Like they did a good job of it being really Diana goes on her self-discovery. She does all the like hard work. She's an independent, strong warrior, right? So good job. Um, if I, I assume there are going to be more movies with her. As they continue, I think it would be about developing a more complex narrative. And you say that on the basis of complex being more intertwined with gender commentary or more complex in the sense that it's just not so basic, like, hey, saving the world? I I would hope for both. I think the plot of this is pretty basic. The plot is very much, you know, save the world. Yeah. Uh, I I would love for some subtle commentary on modern society, but, you know, in a way they can, they don't have to do that because a superhero movie is like a period piece, right? Like it takes place in this fictional fantasy world. So they don't have to try to make it comment on what's happening in real life, but it would be nice if they did. Do you think by virtue of the fact that Wonder Woman is superhero based, it's why it was so popular? Like, will we ever see anything outside of the superhero realm that has a strong female lead that dominates the screen time that can have the same success? Or do we need to really just start with that lowest common denominator of, because obviously superhero movies are extremely popular. That's kind of your entry point. And whether it, it can actually scale up is to be seen. Yeah, I think it's a little bit sad because superhero movies are incredibly popular regardless of the superhero so that they were able to capture a much wider audience by it being a superhero movie like if they had done you know something based off of a real as in like an actual historical uh feminist character i don't i don't think it would have even gotten as many crowds right yeah have you watched um Orange is the New Black. I, I bring that up because my wife watches it pretty frequently. Like it's one of her favorite shows, I'd say. And what's interesting about it, I was like, oh, like, you know, someone that's a casual, a casual viewer. I'm like, do you think this has a lot of longevity to it? And she was saying, like, actually, there's so many complex things they're talking about. And for anyone that doesn't, that doesn't watch, um, Orange is the New Black, it's about female incarceration and, the way that they've set it up, it touches on so many relevant societal topics that perhaps there's so much opportunity for them to explore, whether it's, you know, sexuality, it's about race, it's all these kind of deeper topics that often probably aren't really spoken about in mainstream media. Well, sorry, let me rephrase that. It's not that they're not spoken about. <laughs> it's not that they're done through an avenue like a TV show in such a real format. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I find interesting is that I think more than ever that even though these topics exist, there's now more and more platforms, especially on a Netflix where you're not necessarily held to advertisers. You're just really held to creating great content. 
it enables you to truly mm-hmm. push the boundaries. And at the end of the day, like I'm not being sold anything. I just need to make sure that you're creating you as Netflix are creating compelling moments that are going to make sure that I continue subscribing every month. Now that's to me a lot more fascinating. Maybe it's maybe movies and Hollywood are not where we can expect the biggest advancements in equality, whether it's racial equality in entertainment or even gender equality, not even, but just gender equality in general. Right. I think that's fair. I think we can't really expect a hour and a half, two hour movie to get into too much nuance. I, I still think what I said earlier is, um, what makes me most pleased about Wonder Woman is that girls and even people like my age, right? Like mid twenties is that we can see women fighting on screen. Like that doesn't really happen, right? Like you don't really get a whole battle scene where, cause there's a scene on the beach where it's all these female warriors. Men get to see men shooting other men all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's just nice that we got to see that. Yeah. I, but you brought up Orange is the New Black, which brings us perfectly to our um, last topic regarding uh, the Liechtenstein piece that was sold in order to start that criminal justice fund. That was mind blowing to me on the basis that it was just sort of, you know, the way it was so casually revealed, you know, and I think that it, that, you know, I haven't checked since, since I first came across it and whether it's sort of made, made it, made itself known across the internet. But that honestly is, is massive news in my eyes. I don't, I'm honestly not that familiar with the whole intersection of art collection and philanthropy. But, Mm -hmm. but I think that by virtue of having something like that happen, that is incredibly impactful. Sure thing. So Agnes Gund, who is a art collector, sold her Liechtenstein piece masterpiece for $165 million to another art collector. And that a hundred million of that money was used to start a art for justice fund. And the focus of this fund is to bring criminal justice to in the States. Um, I think that's about it. The reason I mentioned it in connection with Orange is the New Black is, interestingly enough, they are having a kind of fundraiser gala conference. And one of the speakers is um, the woman that TV show is based off of. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I, I, I guess my, my biggest takeaway was she, Agnes, you know, she has done a great job, mm-hmm. I think, of putting um, collectors in the spotlight. Because collectors of a high level are obviously very affluent people. And when I w- when that Keith Haring was sold um, very recently to the guy that started, um, I want to say Zozo Town, I, I was just looking mm-hmm. at his like Instagram and you could see like people were like, oh, amazing. And then on the other side, people were like, you spent that much money and there's, you know, this is always the de facto argument. Oh, so many people are suffering and you're spending this money on art. So this is kind of a call to arms for these types of people to actually make a difference. Yeah. This is something I definitely need to look more into, but there, there is this sort of backhanded nature to affluent people that are trying to make a difference through donations and through putting up fortunes and all that stuff that I don't fully comprehend. And I need to look past the superficial feel good layer of, Hey, you know what? Bill Gates is donating X, Y, Z of his fortune. We talked about this actually just in the last podcast. So it seems like, you know, this is almost a theme for us, 
which is the branding behind why things are done and whether it really matters. Because there's no way we can argue this is, this is definitely net positive, right? Like whatever it does to further Agnes personally or the MoMA or art collectors, we, we can't argue that it's net positive. This is something maybe we should do some research for upcoming discussions because net positive seems to be just the thing that, that guides us. And is it overly basic to just be like, Hey, you know what? Net positive is good enough. Or is there a way to like mm -hmm. optimize and to like start stripping away certain elements to ensure that you're not just a little bit net positive, but you know, by virtue of pursuing this, but not that you could far exceed just an incremental change. Right. So I guess the question is beyond this being a good thing, how can someone do this better via someone doing this worse? And, and someone doing this, I mean, someone who tries to further some kind of charitable cause while also simultaneously furthering their personal yeah. agenda. I mean, I feel, I, I, I don't like saying this, but I always question when there's a lot of money put up on the table, like what are the motives behind something? And I want to personally think that there's, there's no motive aside from what you see. If I'm going to, if Agnes is going to start a fund, it's, it's weird for me to reference her by first name because I don't know her, but if Agnes Gund, yeah, if Agnes Gund is, Ms. Gund. if Miss Gund is going to go and throw up, you know, a hundred million dollars, I want it to be seen as a hundred million dollars towards the support of this cause. Whereas, you know, I remember when, when things were reviewed after the fact for, you know, there's certain things that once you start peeling away the layers, you kind of understand the true motives and intentions, you know, and I think that's like our duty to honestly do their due diligence and to make sure that things are kind of properly understood in that capacity. I did have a little bit of this um, skepticism that you have. When I first heard about this news, like, oh, it's just another one of those sort of attention getting actions. Um, not to say that I, I don't know anything about uh, Ms. Gunn's background, but just, just the nature of the story made me think that. However, what helped me believe in this particular uh, initiative is because it has the support of Brian Stevenson. Are you familiar? No. He started the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama, and he's written this really good book that you should read called Just Mercy. Oh, so you've read it before. And his, yes. So I've read this, uh, I think even like two years ago and was widely recommending it to everyone at that time. And Just Mercy covers um, Stevenson's beginning this initiative, the Equal Justice Initiative. And what they do is try to get wrongfully incarcerated prisoners out of jail. That to you is a great cosign. Yes, that was a that was the best cosign Ms. Gunn could have gotten, at least in my perspective, because many people already knew Stevenson as a advocate for this cause for criminal justice and the fact that he he's quoted in the New York Times article and he supports what she's doing is I'm glad you brought that up because like I said I was never dismissive of this whole thing, but until I get more and more information to build up a solid case that is not just a promotional play. Yeah, I guess that is one way we can start judging whether 
you know, the Zuckerbergs and Bill Gates of the world are doing the right thing is because there are no name people who have been working in the causes that they want to support, right? Like, as an, I mean, no name by like not famous people. And if the Zuckerbergs and the Gates try to partner with these people, then it seems to make their intentions more obvious. Yeah. And that, that to me is probably the one thing that having, having high level people hold each other accountable for things. I think is critical. Would you ever start, or would you, I shouldn't say it that way. I was just trying to think of what the equivalent would be for like people in our industry. And I guess it's like the people we're around collect clothes and toys and sneakers and other products. And it would be like reselling those things for some kind of good cause. Yeah, I think that's something that would definitely be, I mean, there's a lot of, people collect a lot of stuff, you know, sneakers, clothes, electronics, and finding a way to to generate support around that would be really interesting. But arguably, the, the world of art collecting and the world of sneaker collecting, there's, they're miles away in, in terms of how lucrative one and the other can be. Not to say sneakers can't be lucrative, but you're looking at mm-hmm. one piece of art that moved for 165 million. Yeah. Right? I think, how many sneakers do you have to sell? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you could, if one singular collection could ever get to those levels. I think that's a good place to end it. I'm going to let you get back to snorkeling and hang out with your family. I'm going to get ready to go to the office, um, look out the window and lament how gloomy it is and how rainy it is. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>